Welcome, welcome, everybody. Thanks for downloading another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm Joe Cook, joined once again by Bill Venezia. And today we're going to have a special guest, once again, bringing on an author here to talk about his uh, book from history. And Bill here is going to tell you a little bit about our guest today. Well, our guest, Jack Bora, uh, has published in 2017 a, a, a very acclaimed book, The Revolution of Robert Kennedy. Uh, it's a groundbreaking account of how Robert Kennedy transformed horror into hope between the years of 1963 following his brother's assassination in 1966. A little bit about Jack. Jack is a reporter, historian, and TV news producer. He produced The Morning Joe Show and The Eleventh Hour on MSNBC. Jack has helped produce high-profile interviews, including nearly every major 2016 presidential candidate. So sorry, Jim Gilmore, I guess you didn't make the cut. <laughs> His research has been cited by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. He has uh, appeared in the New Yorker magazine, uh, the New Republic, Politico, and USA Today. Um, Jack is uh, 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 the son of friends of my wife and I, and uh, very interesting gentleman. Uh, and we look forward to uh, his interview. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great chat. We'll have Jack on in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break here, as always, for a short little ad for our host app, Anchor. And we'll be right back with Jack Borer here on Wigs for Wigs. Stick around. Welcome back, everybody. We're back here on Wigs for Wigs. I'm Joe Cook with Bill Venezia, and we are joined today by Jack Bohr, and we're going to be talking about uh, his book about Robert Kennedy and the revolution of Robert Kennedy from power to protest after JFK's death. Um, Bill, do you want to Jack, lead us uh, off? You know, First, this, Jack, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry. This is an interesting uh, portrait of a, of a very unique guy. I mean, to quote... Uh, Joe Pesci in JFK, he's an enigma wrapped in a riddle, you know? Uh, <laughs> so if you can if you can tell us a little bit about what attracted you to this portion of, of, J, of RFK's life, tell us about that. Yeah, I was really into Arthur Schlesinger's book when I was in college, or Schlesinger, I think is how you actually pronounce his name, it's not Schlesinger. Uh, and I, I liked the story of Robert Kennedy I found the um, there were a big missing portion of the story though was in the middle. You had all these books about right. the Kennedy White House and then the assassination and then he's running for president. And he's running for president, right? Yeah. And, and it, it, not to say that they gave it not much attention because those other things were so important. But I had this question of like, how did this guy go from being his brother's campaign manager, a guy who his whole life was defined by working for his brother to becoming his own person by night, the campaign in 1968. It wasn't a clean transition. Uh, I, I was very interested also like in the sort of media portrayal of Robert Kennedy. Um, he had personally he had a very down opinion of himself and his political prospects after his brother's death um, from 1963 into 1964. And then it was, how do you go from being one of the most famous uh, leaders of the country 
to being 99 out of 100 senators because he was in his in his first ranking coming into the Senate in 1965. He was ranked 99th in seniority. You know, it's it's interesting too because you, you talked about that opinion of himself. He must have had really low self-image when he decided that, okay, maybe I'll get on the ticket with LBJ in 64. And he hated LBJ, but yet it was a landing spot to be number two. And I don't even think he was thinking about the future. I thought he was thinking about the legacy of his brother and what would come next and what he could effectuate in, in LBJ's administration moving forward. Uh, but it, that shocked me that he actually even asked to be on the ticket. I mean, not only asked, I really tried to dig into uh, the archives and find if I could unearth this campaign, because it wasn't just a, uh, a whim, as it was sort of portrayed by people like Schlesinger and, and other, Evan Thomas, um, as a, like, you know, a brief flirtation. This was his, like, six, seven months after the assassination, this was his plan. And he he had uh, conferred with a lot of the party bosses from uh, Buffalo and Peter Crotty to Chicago to all over the country, really. Jess Unruh in California, I believe, was uh, also, you know, I'm at the stage of after writing my book where I literally can't find a copy of it in my house. <laughs> I'm searching for it this morning. I was like, oh, I, should, I should look at a couple of things. Um, but but um, so to get back to the Robert Kennedy point was that um, I, I think some of that was also like hindsight, too. Um, the people who were writing the biographies of Robert Kennedy in 19, in the 1970s, especially, uh, and, and still to this day, really look at the relationship with LBJ and how, uh, acrimonious it was during the white house. And then what it was during the 68 campaign and think this is, this was impossible to Robert Kennedy. This was like choice number one. Um, and he not only, uh, sort of shifted everything in his life. I, I really wanted to get um, the story of Paul Corbin, uh, which is most of chapter two. Um, and I still think there's some stuff that's just not maybe ever knowable. I think that's my my favorite question for some historians. Like, what won't you ever know? So I'll never know what Robert Kennedy said to Paul Corbin to make him go up to New Hampshire to start this write-in campaign for the vice presidency. Well, that uh, is definitely a problem. I'm primarily a historian of the Civil War era, and there's just so much that we'll never know. <laughs> it's just lost yeah. in the in the record. Uh, and you always follow the footnotes. You go back to the very to the very base uh, basis of of um, why someone believes what they believe. And uh, as as a historian. And I, um, I tried to do that with Robert Kennedy. So I really just went day by day by day by day. And when you look at the, the contemporary media coverage and what he was writing to his friends, his friend Fred Dutton, who later became a 68 campaign manager, was very was writing in memos saying, you'll go here, you'll go here, you'll go here. If you're going to you know, seriously get the kind of party support that you need, the grassroots party support, it wasn't primaries, it was bosses. And that's that's how you will make a stand at the convention. And what did Robert Kennedy do? And you follow his schedule and his schedule shows he went to Syracuse, he went to Southern California, he went here and here. But well, it, it makes sense. And it's it's a very cool um, exercise in history, too, because I know uh, you guys have some uh, conversations about hypotheticals. Like what if Robert Kennedy had been vice presidential nominee and the vice president in 1965? <laughs> 
Yeah. You talk about the uh, the transformation that he undergoes trying to come out of his brother's shadow and establish himself as his own man during those years. But there is also, of course, the other major transformation that he seems to undergo, which is from being the Joe McCarthy hatchet man and then enforcer for his brother's administration to suddenly being the poster child for liberal reform in 1968. So what how exactly does that transformation happen? How much of a role do you think his brother's death plays in that? Or is it that he now is a senator from New York and he's focused on the people of New York more specifically and has more of a relationship with the common people? How does he go from Joe McCarthy to, you know, ripples of hope? I think Robert Kennedy was a very empathetic guy. And I think he was a very loyal guy. I think those are the two most uh, de defining character traits he had. And for empathy, I think he saw McCarthy's maybe trying to do something, something good. Um, and that, you know, there were, there was a very strong strain of anti-communist liberals. And now McCarthy's tactics and McCarthy's whole um, uh, demeanor was, I think, very hard for uh, a lot of liberals to swallow and might have probably driven a lot of liberals from being such staunch anti-communists to becoming um, uh, uh, at least just uh, disinclined to participate in witch hunts, as they saw McCarthy rightly, rightfully so. Um, but Robert Kennedy, had, I think, had a, a soft spot for him as a person and, um, and could sort of identify with McCarthy as an outsider in the Senate. Um, uh, how, and then how he goes to being this sort of um, liberal icon. Well, I mean, Robert Kennedy also sp uh, spoke up for truth. And he... Uh, was not afraid to say things, even though he knew that he would probably get you know, politically maligned for it. Um, he, the, the, uh, he probably would have spoke out a lot earlier on Vietnam, as I sort of talk about in the book, in the second half of the book, if it were not for his brother's legacy in getting uh, United States so entangled in Vietnam. And then he, then he didn't want to, uh, also the sort of political, um, what's the word, the sort of the, the optics of it, I guess to use a more modern word, uh, of of Kennedy coming out against Johnson and re-sparking some of those other uh, long simmering feud that had been discussed muchly in uh, in Washington at the time. Um, so uh, and and then some of it too is a little bit of historical whitewashing, whereas uh, Robert Kennedy wasn't the sort of liberal um, candidate in 1968. It was Eugene McCarthy, McCarthy, <laughs> and, yeah. and that Robert was a come lately. Yeah. Sorry, uh, sorry. And uh, coming back to, to that issue of maybe he didn't want to rock the boat too much of the Kennedy-Johnson thing, just how much, if any, influence did Kennedy representing the family still have on some of the Kennedy acolytes that stuck around in the Johnson administration during those years? The McNamara's, the McBundy's, people like that. Like, Nicholas, What is the relationship between Nick Katzenbach? What is the relationship between Robert Kennedy and those people who still were in the circle of power of the Lyndon Johnson administration? I think they all, they all had a very uneasy time with Lyndon Johnson more than they had an uneasy time with Robert Kennedy, because uh, Bobby was, um, you know, keeping in touch with them. And uh, but he also recognized what Lyndon Johnson was, which was very temperamental. And that, uh, you know, I think it was what it was a whole year until Katzenbach was confirmed as attorney general, or at least formally nominated that that uh, that LBJ I mean, it was in the year, but LBJ kept him as acting for a very long time. And I think 
uh, Katzenbach felt that that was because of his association with Kennedy. Um, and I know that that uh, you know people like Mac Bundy eventually felt very uncomfortable in the in, inside the administration, and mostly because that the president didn't trust them. Um, uh, so I'm sorry again. What was the what was the, the thrust of the question? Just about how they. Uh, what was his relationship and his influence with those people, if there was any, during those years where he was out of what out of the administration, but they right. And so the, this this thing about Bobby was his. He was also sort of a, a always a savvy sort of like political operative in his mind, and so he knew he couldn't. Uh, he, he had to sort of subjugate himself to the president um, at the time. And so he would encourage others to sort of do the same. So that that was how Bobby interacted with that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, the dynamic with uh, Joe McCarthy. Uh, Joe McCarthy dated some of uh, the Kennedy girls. Uh, he was very close friends with not only Jack, but he was friends with Joe. Uh, and uh, so there was this this closeness socially between the Kennedys and, and, and Joe and Tailgunner Joe. Uh, interesting enough, Jack tried to divorce himself uh, of uh, Joe McCarthy when it came to censor him yeah. into the hospital uh, with his back issues, which a lot of people thought were somewhat fabricated just so he didn't have to stand up and vote against McCarthy's censure. You know? Yeah, I mean, I believe in 52 as, as well, like McCarthy didn't come campaign for Lodge and that uh, that was due in part because Joe Kennedy Sr. had donated to McCarthy in the past and been a good friend. And yeah, and he did date Gene. I'm a little less, I think, wasn't there something about like how JFK could have voted I think by a proxy for the um, for the censure, though his his back issues really really were bad. And well, he, they were real, yeah, <laughs> definitely. But it, it is amazing in '56 that he made, waged such a strong campaign for the vice presidency, which later influenced Bobby in his in 1960 and winning the nomination in 1964 and going for the VP in 1968. I think would have influenced them highly in getting the nomination. Um, but in 56, the JFK, you know, just about 10, had only been in, back in the Senate for about 10 months after being away for over a year. Um, he was out. really close to death. Uh, it lucked, he lucked out by not getting a nomination and actually taking himself out of the running uh, because truthfully, I mean, that was going that, that presidency was going down the tubes anyway. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. You know, that was a doomed ticket to start. It's funny, too. Because you don't want to be Estes Kefauver? In Estes Kefauver <laughs> to, you know, the president. Kefauver had a higher, <laughs> a higher uh, you know, Q rating than the guy on top of the ticket. So I want to come back to Bobby sure. Kennedy's empathy, which you said is one of his two defining characteristics, along with his loyalty. Um, and just speak about maybe a little bit if you feel like the grief he experiences throughout his life or his Catholic religious faith, we are here at a Catholic school, what influence those have on his empathy? You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln becomes a much more empathetic person after the death of his son, Willie, and as the Civil War goes on and he experiences that loss for the country. Um, Joe Biden has a lot of empathy that people point out and people point to his loss that he experienced with his family back in the 70s. So what role do you think loss plays both his brother Joe, his his brother Jack getting killed uh, in the life of Robert Kennedy? I mean, I think it made him uh, understand that uh, nothing is permanent, 
that things can change. You can you can be uh, at the other end of an extreme very very quickly, and I think that made him to uh, it, it heightened I think his sense of complexity of um, in approaching everything, uh, and and also it's it's hard to speak to how it affected him personally, mm-hmm. but you know how it he knew people viewed him after that. And they viewed him as a sort of a projection of his brother. Um, and I think it was maybe William Manchester, whose line was that, you know, it was like if Seward was Lincoln's twin, I think, and, and he had to go on. Yeah. And I mean, he was, people literally wanted to touch him. <laughs> they, and they would go uh, absolutely bananas in his public appearances to the point where um, uh, his advanced guys came to see him during the 64 Senate campaign. And he he looked like emaciated, totally drained. And he reaches up with his left hand, I think, and it's bandaged because his right hand is fully bandaged. And he goes, this is what I wanted to talk to you about, of like how his campaign events were just literally like people just clawing at his skin and ripping off his clothes. Um, and he, he would bring, you know, bring extra ties and and um, and, and tie clips and, and other things like that and, and buttons. Um, he he uh, he would say though it's not for me it's for him too often, and that he it made him sort of aware that uh, of this sort of power he had he didn't want the power clearly, and he didn't relish it, but it was it was that extra sort of consciousness on him that loss that, that's what it brought. Um, Interesting that he was like the nation's loss too in that way. During the '68 campaign, in a lot of his speeches, he refers to his brother as President Kennedy. He says Mm -hmm. President Kennedy did this. President Kennedy wanted to do that rather than my brother. And the moment Mm -hmm. that I always think of, where he finally kind of has that personal moment, is I know it's outside the time frame of your book, but the speech he gives the night that Martin Luther King is killed, Mm -hmm. and he says, "I had a member of my family killed." Um, and mm-hmm. it's like finally that wall is broken that he's been trying to kind of say, I'm not my brother. I'm, I'm someone different from my brother, uh, President Kennedy. And now he finally acknowledges, you know, this is a personal loss I had. And this is a connection I have with all of you in the audience. That's interesting. Yeah, I wrote an essay for um, the Library of Congress not long ago about that speech um, for their National Registry. Uh and I and I I think the the piece is called the ambassador of grief, because Robert Kennedy uh, at that time you had such a strong connection to loss uh, in in the public's mind that um, he could go out there and talk about certain things as a white man um, in, in a in a black community um, and 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 help people relate and maybe hopefully see some something positive out of great loss. So yeah, that's, that that's impressive. I um you know he would also really bristle at people referring to your brother, uh too. He didn't yeah. he liked people referring to him as President Kennedy, and uh, at one point, yeah in 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 my book there's a uh, discussion of um this uh, uh the invasion of Dominican Republic by of like several thousand U.S. troops during the civil war there, and uh. Uh, one of his advisors, Peter Edelman, says to, I think it was the New York Herald Tribune, perhaps, uh, which I have a mug right here of the New York Herald Tribune, um, <laughs> says, says something like, yeah, JFK probably wouldn't have done it. Um, he agrees with it. And he and the only time Robert Kennedy ever really lost his temper with Peter 
was over that uh, incident where he said, how will we know what he would have done? He's not here anymore. So he was very sensitive to references to his brother in that way. We also have to remember too, when we're talking about, sorry, uh, the, um, the, the staff members, uh, like they installed a bust of JFK in the cabinet room a year after, as he's more or less after he was assassinated. And so you had all these people who had served in JFK's cabinet sitting around with the new president, they're making decisions about Vietnam and, and other important things. And JFK is literally like over their shoulder watching them. It, 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 was, it was a hard thing to be LBJ in, the, in those days and, and handle the Kennedy relationship. Yeah. Well, it started from the beginning on that plane in, in, uh, in Dallas when he asked Mrs. Kennedy to be uh, present at his swearing in, mm -hmm. uh, and it, uh, which was a, a, a pretty crass act when you think about it. Here's the bloodstained widow uh, having to stand there for posterity, and Johnson wanted it that way. You know. Uh, also, later years, Johnson told people that Bobby Kennedy told him to get sworn in in Dallas before that plane left with JFK's body on board. So it's which it, Bobby didn't really. I mean, he so he called Bobby he and Robert Caro. I, I did a very good reconstruction of this in his latest book, um, and uh, and it, some view of that is also being a little bit um, cruel, uh, considering that it didn't matter whether he said a couple words. He was president as soon as JFK was declared dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just come back for a moment to uh, what role you think. Um, Bobby Kennedy's Catholic faith played in his life? Uh, I mean, he was devoutly Catholic, and I think it uh, gave him a sense of comfort um, that he uh, believed his brother had uh, gone on to heaven. And uh, I think it gave him a sense that uh, there is something greater than all of us. Um, I, I, I really do. Um, believe he did, you know, not mourn for JFK's soul. Um, I think he, he, he missed his brother, but I think he, he did have that really strong faith, which I think, you know, he shared with his wife, Ethel, um, very much. So I, I really also believe that Bobby was a very moral person, um, personally. Um, and I think he often too, too often gets lumped in with some of, um, JFK's personal failings. And I, and I believe JFK had severe personal failings. If you read Frederick Logoval's new book, JFK, which is excellent. I, I'm literally looking forward to the second volume of that. Um, he, he was not a, a good moral person. Um, uh, it, to like the point of where it's like a little bit like sociopathic, like how much he could disconnect himself. Um, whereas like Bobby, that was not him. Uh, there, I, I really struggle to find instances of people talking about him being needlessly cruel. Um, he could. He was a millionaire's son and he wanted one of the wealthiest families in the country. So he was out of touch at times. Yeah. But I, I really do think that um, his, his sense of morality came from his faith. And I think his, his mother talked about that too. His mother wrote a very nice um, memoir uh, and, and her children. Um, and it seems like, you know, Bobby was the one who really took it most to heart. You know, Bobby, uh... Bobby definitely had, uh, though he was a millionaire's son, he had a lot of empathy for the poor. Obviously, the initiatives that he did in the state of New York 
in Bedford-Stuyvesant and uh, around the country, around the world, the, the stance on apartheid in South Africa, where he put himself in danger to make that speech uh, at the University of South Africa. Uh, he, I think he was more the idealist and his brother was more the pragmatist. Uh, I don't think the civil rights issue would have been pushed as much by JFK, well, he said, until the second term. I think Bobby would have been the impetus to push that forward. I mean, uh, he, uh, he had a, a, a lot to do with, in the Justice Department with regard to the integration of the University of Mississippi uh, and to threaten George Wallace in Alabama uh, to, uh, to you know, basically let, uh, allow people to vote. So I think he was the conscience of that organization, whereas uh, Jack was his father for the most part. You know, um, I think that- Well, and thinking politically too, Bobby um, was gonna leave the administration mostly because of how unpopular he was in the South over yeah. the push for civil rights. And he felt that it was uh, gonna be a real hurdle right. to jump. was so important for the Democratic Party that that-, that, mm -hmm. that I mean, there's this there's this photo of, of John F. Kennedy in the 1960 campaign in Georgia, where it's basically him giving a speech with the giant Confederate flag behind him, like waving behind him. And I believe Georgia was where he got his highest percentage of the vote mm -hmm. in any state um, in 1960. Uh, so and and, and he, JFK was not getting that in 1964, had he been on the ticket, no question. Um, uh, yeah, and Robert Kennedy's connection with the poor um, was was incredibly important to him, and I and I think he felt um, people who were you know he he felt a lot of um, hurt and pain in those years, and he wanted and they, and he saw people whose lives were perpetual pain um, from how uh, the grinding poverty that they were living in, whether it was in California with the, some of the farm workers or in the hollows of West Virginia. And I think that's that made him that we're talking about that empathy again. I think he said, you know, he wanted to do something for these people that it was it was so terrible for them with that way The in, we talk about Staten Island and all the kids uh, with disabilities who are living in their own filth and going there and, and trying to expose uh, the, the terrible conditions that they were living in. Another case of, of Robert Kennedy's deep empathy and on the South Africa thing. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed, and this is, I think, maybe like one of the final, this is the final chapter of the book before the, the epilogue. Um, we sort of get, we're sort of marching towards the Ripple of Hope speech in the book, from the assassination to the Ripple of Hope speech, that's the bookends. Uh, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King was invited to, by those students, to uh, to speak in South Africa. The government of South Africa said, no, you can't have this guy come, he's a communist, For, you know, forget him. Uh, they invite Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy says, "Okay, I'll go. We'll see if they they convince me if I'm a you know if they they uh, accuse they can't accuse me of being a communist. I'm Joe McCarthy's former aide." <laughs> and so Robert Kennedy goes and he goes all around the, the country and and sort of speaks to the democratic ideals of free speech and um, and, and equality. And uh, I you know it's it's he used his his power for good that power that he did not want. <laughs> Jack, I, I want to sum up with something more personal. What was it like as a TV producer to work? Uh, I guess it would be midnights for Morning Joe and then afternoons for Brian Williams. Uh, tell us a little about th those types of days. You know, when did your day start? When did it end? And what My Morning Joe day started uh, the day before I would write an editorial note 
um, the night before of, of all the sort of stories that we would cover. And, and then uh, and then I would get on the subway around midnight and then I would uh, and get to work and work till 9 a.m. till the show is over. And then I go home and then it's six o'clock the next night. I'd write the editorial note again. Um, working for Brian was a longer day, frankly, too, because we'd start at 10 a.m. with an executive producers meeting. And then uh, it was pretty much all day until, you know, midnight. <laughs> so those were those were those were long days. Um, I've. I've it was hard. And I, I went to Morning Joe mostly so that I could go to the library in the morning and, and finish my book. I'd been, I'd been working for Steve Kornacki before that on the weekend. So I had a little more time, free time. Um, but I, I enjoyed working for, for Joe and Mika and Willie and Mike Barnacle and everybody there. And, uh, and, and Brian's a great guy too. I was just texting with him the other day. Um, yeah, I, it, it, it's, it was an interesting time. It was a lot of hard work. I definitely couldn't have written a book the entire time by, while I was doing that. Um, uh, and that's, it's tough. It's a tough job. <laughs> well, Zach, we really appreciate you coming on. We are, you know, unfortunately limited in time. I'm sure you, you're busy also. I wanted to ask one last thing before we wrap up here and my, my class comes in, which is as a teacher of history, what do you feel after the time you've spent with Robert Kennedy and your research and all, what should students today know about Robert Kennedy? That things are more complex than they might appear. That Robert Kennedy wouldn't appear to be uh, anybody who would want to be on LBJ's ticket, but he really wanted to do it. That um, he had to find his way to becoming the person who people idolize and maybe idealize as well. Uh, so that history is more complicated and follow the footnotes and you'll find the real story if you can. So it's a, a great way for us to wrap up. Jack. Thank you very, very much uh, sure. for this. I appreciate your time. Uh, I will say hello to your parents who are going out with on Friday afternoon. Both of Jack's parents are educators, by the way. Not unlike Joe. So, yeah, PS 23 in Jersey City is my mom. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. You too. All right, that was great. Once again, outside guests coming on, knocking out of the park. We're having good luck so far with our uh, outside guests. Though so we've had some good ones. Joe Pompeo, my friend Leo the other day, talking about historical memory. And now Jack Boer, your yes. takeaways. Well, um, the, the one takeaway, it's kind of interesting. Uh, both Joe Pompeo in his book, uh, Blood and Ink, and Jack Boer's book about RFK, both, uh, both of the writers the, are critically acclaimed. Both started at Politico and knew each other from there, and both are the offspring of two educators. Uh, I think that has something to do with it. Um, I was very taken with the difference between, uh, uh, between Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. Uh, uh, Jack goes into that in his book, and they were two very, very different men, and I, I think he gives... Jack gave a lot of insight into the psyches of, of really both men by the con to contrast both of them. Um, Robert Kennedy, uh, uh, of course, uh, a very empathetic man. Uh, I don't think uh, JFK had the same type of empathy. I, think I don't think so. I think JFK had much more trouble 
really making connections with people on a personal level. It's interesting that you bring that up. There's a great book about JFK written by Chris Matthews. It's called <laughs> Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero. And he goes into what made up that person, who was a phenomenal campaigner. People wanted to be around him. He was charismatic. He could deliver a speech. He could press the flesh. But he was never really close to anybody, yeah. even his close advisors. Uh, Chris Matthews, in his book, says that that has to do a lot to do with his upbringing. He was very sickly as a child, spent a lot of time in hospitals, never felt the warmth of his mother. Uh, very influenced. Both men were very influenced by their, their domineering father. Uh, who well, it's interesting because one thing that Jack Gore talked about with us today is that uh, Catholic connection that Robert had, especially with the mother, that really he took a lot of that faith and empathy from their mother, Rose. Um, yeah. Maybe Jack didn't have quite that relationship. I think, uh, yeah, I think Rose showed up almost every day to go to Mass, but I, mm -hmm. I think her husband basically showed up on Palm Sunday. So it was more or less a Palm Sunday Catholic. Mm -hmm. But uh, Robert Kennedy definitely was imbued with that sense of empathy. Uh, and um, you can see how he transformed himself uh, once he got out from under the tutelage of one Roy Cohn <laughs> with the McCarthy hearings. So, yeah, a phenomenal interview, great insight into the man. It was, and I only wish that we had more time. Um, some of you who are our listeners know a little bit of the behind the scenes of how we go about making this podcast. We try to schedule these things around my free periods, days that Bill is here in work, um, <laughs> And there's a lot of confusion with the, the schedule here at Hudson Catholic. And unfortunately, with this particular case, we have been going back with Jack trying to make a, a schedule time for this interview. We thought we had a day lined up where I had an hour-long free period where we really could have dug into a, a lot of these issues more deeply. Instead, some things came up with the schedule. Today, I wound up only having half an hour available, and Jack was gracious enough to change the time that he made available for us and all. But there was a lot more that we could have gone into with Jack Bohr for sure about Robert Kennedy. Yeah. And just the restraints of time kept us from doing that. But if you haven't uh, read the book and looking for a good read, uh, this book has gotten a lot of acclaim. Uh, and again, it is, uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's called The Revolution of Robert Kennedy. It was published in, in 2017. And uh, it's a, a, a great read, especially those of you like myself who are interested in Camelot and the aftermath and also what could have been in 1968. And I think yeah, it would have... One of the great what-if politically in that, American history. Absolutely. What if Bobby had not been assassinated and it was him going up against Nixon rather than Hubert Humphrey? I think, Nothing against Hubert Humphrey, but... No, I mean, um, I think that uh, the United States would have been on a different trajectory. Uh, and uh, We talked about that a little bit in our great elections, most important elections episode, that... If Bobby goes on and beats Richard Nixon, there is no Watergate. <laughs> no. And what is American history like since then if there is no Watergate scandal? Because that so imbues everything about how we look at our presidents since then and our politicians since then, that what if Watergate doesn't exist? What if Bobby was the president? So it's, there's so much of a what if with the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And the really interesting about Jack Borger's book is that it doesn't 
go up to the assassination. Really, as he said, what it's building up to is the Ripples of Hope speech that he gives in South Africa, one of the great speeches in American history. Um, and we touched on that, that. It is that forgotten period of Robert Kennedy's life that he focuses on, which is what makes it unique compared to other Kennedy biographies that are out there. And also the, the uh, to be credited, RFK's speech in Indianapolis following the assassination yeah, which of is Martin Which is one Luther of my King. favorite speeches. I play it every year in class. Yeah, um, it's... Uh, which it I is. brought up to Jack Bohr, that, that that empathy finally seemed to really come through in a more personal way, where he says, I had a member of my family killed, where he, he very rarely talked about his brother's death publicly. Um, and, and here, that veil came down, where he was connecting with this audience of almost entirely black people in Indianapolis, in that shared grief that they had. I think he finally stepped out of his brother's shadow with that I think speech. so, too. And... Uh, you know, even though that sad history, it sadly he only had two more months himself yes. to live. But. Yes. Uh, but anyway, great show today, Joe. Yeah, Look great forward. show, great interview. Maybe we'll we'll try to arrange, bring Jack back on another time if we can, if he'd be willing um, to really complete this interview. Because, like I said, we just scratched the surface of what we could have talked about. We didn't really get into his work. I mean, other than your last question his work as a producer on news shows and dealing with the newsmakers of today. So that's a whole other conversation we could have with Jack Borer another time. But this is a great episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Robert Kennedy. We encourage you certainly to read the book, to go out and buy it. It is The Revolution of Robert Kennedy by Jack Borer. Go check it out. Let us know your thoughts. Reach out to us at Wigs for Wigs. That is W I G S F O R W H I G S at gmail.com. We are always thrilled to hear from you, and we hope we do. So take care, everybody out there, and we'll see you again soon on another episode of Wigs for Wigs. Take care, everybody.